Hello, everybody. Today, if you noticed the title of this podcast episode, and that is the key to ending trafficking. And I think it's such an important conversation to have. And we have Deborah Spencer on. Deborah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. It's a joy to be here. Well, it is. It's such a joy to be with you again. And I'll, I'll never forget. Oh, my gosh. It was about a year and a half ago. All of a sudden, God just pulled into my life. People working on anti-trafficking and, and sex trade and anti-slavery works in Thailand, India, China, Ghana, here in the U.S., like all within a few weeks period. And I said, you know, there's something going on here. And I said, hey, would everybody like to get together just on a Zoom call, just us, and just share what's going on, how we can help each other out? And out of that, you guys have continued to stay connected, haven't you, Deborah? We have. It was a great call, and I met a lot of new people I had not met before. And yes, we've stayed in touch and worked together. And so thank you for introducing us all. That was a wonderful meeting. It was. And I, I, had to, I was so inspired. But I learned some things that I want to share but as we kind of frame up this conversation because somebody threw out this number. I'm like, this cannot be true. I went and researched it in the way that we measure this, but somewhere between 25 million and 43 million people today right now are, are owned. They are property. They're being trafficked. It is the, we talk about slavery the level of slavery in our world right now is at the highest level that it's ever been in history. And it just saddens me. It sickens me. And if we actually take the low number, 24.9 million, that is three, think of that, 24.9 million men and women that are owned, they're trafficked, they're used for sex, they're used to make money, they're in all different, you know, these modes by evil people to make a profit. That is three times the population of just New York City. Imagine three New York Cities filled with some of those beautiful young men and women in the world that are in this situation. And the reason I asked, uh, you know, Deb reached out to me and said, you know what, these are some things that we've been working on in some different areas. And you know what, uh, let me just read Deborah's uh, bio here and we're going to dive into some things because we really want to talk about if this is something that is near and dear to your heart and you want to be involved, we're going to show you how to do that. If you know somebody that this is, you know what, anger is okay when it's righteous anger. And this is something to be angry about, right, Deborah? Yes, yes. Yes. So Deborah is a Harvard-educated lawyer. I was on the Harvard campus once. That's as close as I got, Deborah. Um, <laughs> So, um, she has a heart to uplift oppressed women and girls, and the people she um, serves right now have been identified by Thomson Reuters and the BBC as some of the most exploited in our world today. Uh, she co-founded and leads an organization that trains them, uh, ends child marriages, child labor to form a barrier of prevention against trafficking in their homes and communities and to lift them then, once I've connected with them and helped them above that poverty level. And you've been married to Stuart for 36 years. You got three amazing sons and a daughter-in-law, and I got three sons and a daughter-in-law. So um, I look That's forward great. to one of these days meeting in person. But with that, I would love for you to share a little bit you know, about your journey that led you 
you know, through Harvard into absolutely following God's calling into a, a passion that he put on your heart. Yeah, thank you, John. I would love to meet you someday too. And aren't those daughter-in-laws wonderful after raising three boys? We we love having a girl. Yeah, they're so too. sweet and nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I went to law school and um, loved the practice of law, Did wound up doing uh, trial work, and thoroughly enjoyed the practice of law, never wanted to have children. And um, one day my husband turned to me and asked me what we were going to do without kids. Um, he just really wanted to have children. And I am so glad he started that conversation because... Um, the best thing that we did was to have children. Mm -hmm. And I say God has a sense of humor because he gave us three boys in four years. <laughs> I feel like I lost about five years. It's just such a kind of a haze when you've got little kids in the home, but it was a joyful haze. We, we loved having our boys at home. And I took a 180. I went from not wanting to have kids to wanting to be at home with them. So I spent all of their years, well, I practiced law for a couple more years, but worked my way out of that job and wound up staying home with them. And then when our youngest son was getting ready to graduate, I was praying about what to do next. And I wanted to make a difference, but I was willing to do whatever it was that the Lord wanted me to do. And when the Sister India opportunity came along, when I first heard of it, I didn't quite understand how it would be a good fit for me. But within about a day and praying about it, I realized there was really no other place in the opportunities presented to me where I could make a greater difference in the now, world. Had you been over there before? Like, question for you. So attorney... And you have kids, you realize, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I want to be home with the kids. And then as they're maturing, you know, where did this passion start to grow to work with, you know, these young men and especially women who've been trafficked? Yeah. So we had gone, we took a family trip to India and none of the things that were working against were apparent to me in the time that we were there. Um, we had a wonderful time had a lot of fun, but it was after I came back and heard about Sister India and someone started sharing with me all of the things that Indian women and girls face. You mentioned that the Thompson Reuters Foundation names India as the most dangerous country for women and girls. And the BBC has identified the women and girls we serve as some of the most oppressed in the world. And it's because of high rates of child marriage, high rates of domestic abuse, practices like bride burning. What is bride earning, Deborah? Bride burning um, oh. is, it's my braces. That's okay. It's <laughs> adult braces, I'll get you every time. <laughs> it's when they literally will, will throw acid on a woman or um, set her on fire. And so it's a very, very horrific form of domestic abuse. Mm. Rates of domestic abuse are very high, and they're much higher among child brides. Any girl married before 18 has a much higher chance of suffering from domestic abuse. 
And then one of the, the things cited by the Thompson Reuters Foundation was the high rates of trafficking and the sexual violence. And so this was all a shock to me because like I said, we'd gone there, we hadn't seen any of this. We didn't, I, you know, it just was not apparent from what we'd seen. So I started researching and the statistics bear it out that there's just, all of this is illegal, but the practices don't match the laws in India, sadly. So when you said the Sister India opportunity was presented to you, what did that look like? I got a call about it and Mm -hmm. I was invited to consider leadership in the organization and they knew I was looking for something to do. And I, like I said, I wasn't certain at first at all, but I spoke with my husband and my children and prayed about it. And within a day, you know, the need is so great, so great. And the program that we offer is so tremendous. It's so powerfully effective and can be accomplished for not a lot. As we start talking about trafficking, the costs of rescuing someone who is trafficked are massive. You know, of course, the emotional costs of what they've been through and then to get them back out. But the cost to prevent trafficking is so low. It was just a wonderful opportunity. And I knew I would probably never again have an opportunity to make such a difference in a group that had such a great need. So I said yes. And then, um, so I incorporated Sister India. We're a 501c3, publicly supported. We have a fabulous board of directors. Uh, I would not have been able to take us to where we are without our board. Mm. Just some very committed people who believe in the mission and they've been phenomenal. And then supporters started coming alongside and heard about what was happening to women and girls and wanted to help them. And it's been so wonderful to see Sister India grow, to see the women and girls who've been helped. I think of one little girl, her name is Lily. And this doesn't have to do with trafficking, but it could. It could have for her. She's 12. Most of our students are a little bit older. Most of our students are women and older teens who never had a chance to get an education. And often they were child brides. And when a girl in India is married, and we consider this a form of trafficking because they're married off against their will, often without even knowing they're going to get married, but they don't have a choice quite often in the matter. So when a girl in India is married, she's pulled out of her home, she's pulled out of her school, she's sent to live and work in the home of her husband's family. And the work is, you know, first daylight to nighttime, and um, all of her opportunity is lost. So our students are those women who never got a chance to go to school. But Lily's older sister was there in the class and knew that Lily wanted to be a doctor and she was 12 and she never learned to read or write. And so we took Lily into the class and um, she can now read and write and her story is yet to be continued. Well, there's more happening for Lily. And so that's exciting. But as we're teaching these students, we're training their community in how to recognize the signs of trafficking, how to prevent child marriages in their communities, 
So you've got a group all bound together, putting up a wall of prevention against trafficking, not only in that home, but also in the whole community. And as we work community by community, we're able to form a wall of prevention against trafficking in India. Could you do me a favor just for people listening? And when you say the word trafficking, um, what do you mean by that? Because, you know, typically I think of it as kind of the sex trade, right? Mm -hmm. People being brought in here against their will to the U.S. to kind of serve in that capacity. But it's much broader than that, isn't it? It is. And in India, it takes a completely different face than in the U.S. I don't know as much about the U.S. as I do about India. In India, many, many people are trafficked by their own families and relatives. And poverty is a a tremendous driver of trafficking. So you'll see a family that needs funds even to eat. And so they will sell one of their family members, one of their children to be trafficked. And it could take the form of bonded labor where that child is going to work and probably will never work off the wages. They probably can't read whatever agreement might have been put in front of them. They probably don't understand the numbers. And so they wind up working all of their lives for basically nothing. But an estimated 80% are trafficked for sexual exploitation. Mm. So that's what we commonly think of as trafficking. And there's a great deal of that in India as well. So when you have somebody, somebody's basically purchased a human and they're using them from sunup to sundown, what are some things that you were able to do? We titled this, hey, the key to ending trafficking that has worked to be able to pull people out of you know, 12, 13, 14 hours a day labor and be able to come into your community and attend classes with you? Yeah. So uh, really our focus is on prevention. Most people don't know that only about 1% of all people, maybe as high as 5% of all people who are trafficked are ever rescued. And so, uh, you know, if a hundred people, just to use a number, are trafficked each year and only five of them are ever rescued, the rescue can't be the way to end trafficking. We have to rescue. It's essential. I'm not, I'm not arguing against rescue. But when I talk yeah, like about- Like some of our friends who are on that call, they're completely involved in that rescue side. Yeah. I remember the story from one of the gentlemen in uh, Thailand. They've rescued about 400 kids and they pull them out and rehabilitate them. And they pull them far enough away from where they were. And I think he said only one person that they've ever pulled out went back voluntarily, kind of left. I think they were just, uh, just feel bad for that one young, whoever is a boy yeah. or girl. But, but you're right. That it, it just, that just feels the rescue side and people that do this, which is very important, but I didn't realize it's such a small number. Yeah, that's a beautiful work and an important work. And we do offer our classes to people who have been trafficked. And there are people who have taken the classes. And one of the problems with rescue is they're used to the income and the lifestyle. And they're also covered with the shame and don't know any way out. And so the classes provide them with a method of supporting themselves. Our students' income increases by about 55% by the end of the year. So they have a way to support themselves and their family. So yeah, we are, we are very much for rescue and 
love to work with organizations that are involved with rescue to help them give these these women and girls a new life and a new path. But it sounds like the real key here is the prevention side. For us, it is. Um, mm-hmm. Just by looking at the numbers, another statistic, well, it's not actually a statistic, but a quote. I was listening to a podcast on which Gary Haugen of IJM said that a trafficker in India is more likely to be struck by lightning than to be prosecuted for their crimes. And of course, we need to come to the point where every one of those traffickers is prosecuted and you know they're equipped to be able to pursue them all. But I think also we need to get to the point where there's not a village a trafficker can go where they're welcome. In the last year more than ever, many of us are deeply yearning to make a positive impact where we can and bring light to a dark world. If that's your heart, I'd like to share Sister India's story with you. India is the most dangerous nation in the world for women and girls. Severe poverty and illiteracy make them vulnerable to trafficking and forced labor, while customary practices encourage child marriage, sexual assault, and female infanticide. Sister India changes these vulnerable women and girls' lives and teaches families to value girls as precious image bearers. Its program's outcomes are life-changing. Last year, average household incomes among participants increased 60%, and families began preventing trafficking, child labor, and child marriages. Each gift of $25 creates generational change for a woman, learner, and her daughters and strengthens communities that love and uplift girls as the beautiful gifts they are. Also, your gift is matched to multiply your impact through the end of the year. Learn more about our story and outcomes and join in giving at sisterindia.org. So how do you start that process, Deborah? When you walked into this, because you were the founder, right? This was an idea. You really formed it and turned this into a very effective organization. Where did you start? It's really a team effort, John. You know how it is. If there's going to be any success, any any effort, it was a group of people. Um, And I would say I started with our board of directors and worked with them, worked with people who had served in the field and in India for a long time. We had found this wonderful program that we knew was going to work. So our job was to put together a team to help make it possible across India. And it's been amazing. What was the program, Deborah? It's a year-long program where the students, they learn how to read, write, and do math, and they learn how to run their own businesses. So they're little home-based businesses making candles or soap, just enough to bring in some more income. But because they can read, write, and do math, they have the skills they need to survive. And most families come from below the poverty level to above the poverty level by the end of the year through this program. And as I mentioned, a huge driver for trafficking is poverty. So a desperate family will sell off a family member. But if we give them the tools that they need to support themselves so they can feed themselves and put their children in school, then the pressure for trafficking is decreased. And then they also learn about trafficking, what it is, what will happen to their children once they're trafficked, how to prevent it in their community. So 
even if there's pressure on one family to traffic, there will be lots of other sets of eyes and ears watching out and protecting those children from the traffickers. They also learn about child marriages, domestic abuse, lots of those things that happen that should not be happening in the community. And so did this start small, like with one community and you pulled some of the young women into this class, started working with the parents and they saw, hey, the folks that worked with this organization, they were able to increase their income. They moved out of the poverty level and that created some momentum. Uh, Share with me kind of how things progressed. Yeah. So um, people who can't, we don't know what we don't know. So when you go into a community and you tell them that their lives will be better if they can run their own business or, you know, can read and write, once they see the benefits for their family, they want to be involved. And so the first step is to help them to see the challenges they're now facing are tied up in the poverty and often illiteracy and ability to even read an agreement, count change so they're not cheated, all of the things that are holding them down. And then they'll come into the class and begin to experience that life transformation. So we started, our Sister India's classes started in several villages and has just grown, but we go village by village or community by community. That's awesome. So people listening right now, whether it's in India or other countries and they're hearing, they're like, you know what? I would like to act. I want to be involved. Uh, What advice do you have for folks? Kind of like where you were as you were thinking about this, you know, many years ago. You mean if they want to be involved in preventing trafficking? Yeah. Let's start with that. And then maybe even how they could be involved and help you with what you're doing with Sister India. Yeah, yeah. Well, here in the U.S., I'll give you an example, you know, close to home. A lot of the girls and children, boys too, who are being trafficked are involved in the foster system. And so I was working with some lawyers here representing foster kids going through the system. And I saw that statistic and I thought, you know, these lawyers who are representing these kids need to know that. They need to know that the kids they're representing are at really high risk for trafficking. And so the local organization that trained us set up a training connecting an expert in trafficking with these lawyers and just told them how to watch for the signs of trafficking among the foster kids. So, you know, just being aware in your community, I know there are really great programs. One is Unlock Freedom where the students are learning about how to recognize the signs of trafficking in their school. Um, But just raising awareness about what to look for, I think is the first line of defense in your own community and everybody can play a part in that in their own way. Yeah. I was just a a good friend of mine uh, here in Denver. He and his wife have been very involved in a homeless shelter here called Socks Place, mm. you know, like, uh, you know, S-O-C-K-S, because mm-hmm. when this, the founder that started it would, uh, he really worked with younger homeless and they wanted socks, right? Uh, foot care for the Aww. homeless is really hard. Yeah. So something that shocked them 
when they got to know uh, his wife really started getting to know a lot of the women younger, you know, 16 to 25 year olds that were homeless. Mm-hmm. And a majority of these young women were, had come out of the foster care system. Mm. And they would rather, and this is here in Denver right now, this is happening today. They would rather be on the street and homeless than go back to the environment that was happening in the foster care system. Mm. Abuse, oh. uh, being hooked on drugs, uh, sex trafficking, all this was actually happening in the foster system right here in Denver. I, I honestly was a bit, I didn't know that until I just had, this was a dinner that I just had with him a week ago, Deborah, mm-hmm. and, and I'm like, I had no idea. So, you know, when you talk about what you're, you know, this foster system, if you're here in the U.S. and, you know, just think about some of these young men and women and what we can do you know, just by getting involved, by volunteering some time, by finding an organization that's working with this population, because they're doing some similar things with these folks, helping them like you're doing, teaching them life skills, math, reading. Uh, uh, they've worked with local employers to find internships so they can get some. They've never had experience where they've had to be responsible in that system, especially like, you know, anything that would give them some self-dignity. And yeah, there's so many places where we can actually, if this is something that we're want to make a difference in, anywhere we want to look, there's a, a need and the need is so much bigger than I even realized. Yeah, I encourage people to get involved in the foster system here in the U.S. I think that's a great, great place to start. And then with Sister India, you can go to our website, sisterindia.org. We are still in need of people to sponsor students for the current school year. Of course, COVID affected everybody in India as well as here. And um, so our class year was pushed back a bit, but our students just started the first of this month. And we're still in need of sponsors. People can sponsor students. If you have a group that you want to raise your voice on behalf of Indian women and girls, you can go to create a page. There's a whole place there where you can learn more. There's a video. You can set up your own page and you can advocate with your own community for them. And again, it's it's raising awareness. And what's I think the name we, of that website you just mentioned? It's sisterindia.org. Okay. But what you talked about, create a page, what, what was that? Yes, on our website at sisterindia.org, you can go to the link that says create a page, and that will take them to a place where they can create their own page to advocate for them. And here's a question for you. What does it cost to sponsor one young lady for a year in your program? It is, it is because we're equipping people, it's less than $25. You can change someone's life. You can... Just $25 will sponsor that student for the whole year, not 25 per month, but 25 for the whole year. So if someone wanted to give 25 a month, by the end of the year, they would have helped 12 students um, lift themselves from poverty, learn about trafficking and child marriage. And each class in a new village is $750 for the year. Okay, so... Here's what I'm going to do, and I, I hope our community, this is such an important cause, we're going to sponsor a class for a village for a year, and I'd love to see anybody out there go to sisterindia.org and join us in that. Imagine 
just the impact of hundreds, if not thousands of young women being taken out of being potential victims of this by being educated, by giving the ability to create a life to really change their future and just step into a future in partnership with, with what God has in store for them. John, thank you. You did not tell me you were going to do that. Thank you very much. Well, I didn't know I was going to do That's that. That's amazing. It on my heart. And, <laughs> uh, and you know what? We need to do more. But, you know, $25 for just think of the life-changing event of young woman who, if she got sold and it was somebody's property for the rest of her life versus somebody that goes into your program and learns how to read and write and think her parents are educated and we're changing the cycle. And what if it's 10 years from now and these people that are trafficking these young women, the culture had shifted because of this influence and this education where the community wouldn't allow it anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's what you're moving toward, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes. We want to reach every one of those communities and form a barrier. And that's amazing. Okay, so it's sisterindia.org. You know, as, as we're just talking about this whole issue, how to help, how to get involved with Sister India and outside, what are just some of your final thoughts you'd leave to, like to leave with just everybody listening out there, just an encouragement, or, you know, kind of a call to action? Yeah, I would say take courage. I think any time that God lays a big vision on your heart, it's going to scare you a little bit. And that's a good thing because that means it's going to have to be his work and not yours. And if you will show up every day and trust him with that day and with the things he's put before you that day, he will provide the way and you're going to make it. He's going to take you there. So press on, have courage. Press on, have courage. And I love what John Maxwell said once. Uh, he said, do something and something will happen. <laughs> and I think when God puts something on our heart to get involved, uh, one of the things my wife are involved in here is, you know, young, single teenage moms mm. who are really struggling here. Um, we have some personal life experience with that. In, you know, there's so many things in this world that are happening uh, that we complain about. And there's so many people doing amazing things, good things, just like what you're doing through and Sister India. And you know what? We can't wait for the government to get involved. We can't wait for the government in India or here in the U.S. or Ghana or Thailand, you know, to legislate or put together programs. I think that is what we are called to do, to serve the widows mm -hmm. and the poor and the least of us. And in doing that, you know what? We're serving the Lord in a huge way. Yes, that's what we were made to do. Well, thank you so much for your time, Barbara. This has been just an amazing conversation. The size of the problem is just heartbreaking. But the hope and the encouragement that, you know what? People like you and organizations like yours and Sox Place and so many others are in the fight. And they're making it happen and they're serving people and we can get involved and we can make a difference. And I'd, I'd just love to hear from our audience what you thought, what you're going to do, 
even if it's something small, um, let's be part of just bringing light out into some very dark places. Thank you so much. This has been a joy. Yeah, thank you, Deborah, and thank you for what you're doing. We'll definitely be supporting you and praying for you big time. Oh, thank you. So appreciate it, John. All right, keep rocking. All right, you too. (laughs) 